what does it start as and then grow into that end state of everything having these very unique features that can only happen on a high throughput blockchain to me it kind of feels like where we're at right now where you see jupiter doing cool shit or you see order books coming online through phoenix and you see deep in applications like teleport actually having a thesis on how you could build uber on the blockchain and you see hive mapper existing on solana and you see helium offering their 5g plan for 20 dollars built on solana like we're in the early 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 stages of having applications that are doing shit that can only happen on these high throughput chains. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that like Dan and I, you believe the future of finance is on the blockchain. And we're excited that London is becoming a global hub for blockchain innovation and institutional adoption of digital assets. That's why we're pumped to host the 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London this March. Don't miss your chance to get ahead of the curve. Later in this episode, we'll tell you how you can save 20% off on your ticket. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. I'm your host this week, Dan Smith, and I'm joined by a few of our fellow BlockWorks research analysts, Matt, Westy, and Effort Capital. Uh, we are here to give you an exciting epi- uh, analyst roundtable episode this week. Uh, so we're recording this on uh, December 26th, day after Christmas. Hope everybody had a great holiday. Enjoyed some much needed time off going into the new year. Uh, if it really is the start of the bull market, we're going to need the, the extra rest to stay on top of all these, these market happenings. Uh, looking at the charts definitely wears you out. There's no doubt about that. Uh, whoever was responsible for that soul bid uh, over Christmas, you're a sick person. Enjoy some time with your family. Uh, but yeah, guys, thanks for joining. We're doing a little bit of a change up this week for our every week listeners on the roundups. We're going to do more of a traditional roundup. If you listen to any of the other BlockWorks podcasts, um, they do more of like a question based uh, roundup where we always play a game of hot seat cool throne. So just changing it up this week, given that there's a few open-ended questions that are really fun to jam on. And uh, in our analyst morning calls, we, we honestly talk mostly about these things. Uh, so we figured why not bring it to the podcast. So the first one we're going to jam on is really just what a successful 2024 will look like for both Ethereum and Solana. Obviously, Solana has been very much so the talk of the town on crypto Twitter, um, and really even just like on the research side of things as well. They're doing a lot of cool stuff and they survived a very pivotal moment for the chain and that really hardened the community uh, as well as the developer community, which ultimately is very, very important in the success of a chain. Um, so they deservedly so are, are kind of in this, this limelight in a lot of different ways. So uh, that's kind of brought a lot of negative attention in just kind of a strange way onto Ethereum as it, it sort of highlighted a lot of the things Ethereum maybe was doing wrong or not as well. Um, as some of these other new alternative chains that are kind of hitting their apex at this, this point in time. So I really kind of forced me to think about what are they doing right and what are they really, really good at? And there are definitely some very key things here. So Westy, maybe I'll toss it over to you. How would you define success for Ethereum going into next year? Yeah, I mean, you brought up a really good point. If we were doing like a hot sequel throne, ETH would definitely be in the hot seat especially as of recent, but also like on the year as a whole, like if you look at the soul ETH chart or the Bitcoin ETH chart or really any coin versus ETH, that's definitely underperformed relative to the market. And I think, like you said, that's sort of come from a fractionalization of narratives or like a lack of real, like big narrative versus something like Solana that, like you said, had sort of like this comeback story as a clear, improved user experience with low fees and uh, lower latency versus like the Ethereum L1. And, you know, Ethereum is obviously focused on this roll-up-centric roadmap, but as a result, you sort of fragment 
uh, the narrative between different rollups that are optimizing for different things. And so far this year, like there really hasn't been a reason to bid ETH. Whereas with Bitcoin, you have this sort of institutional narrative, you have inscriptions that have really taken off. Um, Ethereum kind of sits in the middle where, yeah, it's going after this like really, really robust security layer. It has a very large market cap, but it hasn't really gotten the institutional bid as well as it's not low enough like Solana to have sort of like its, its comeback story or to have some sort of trade where you can trade sort of the parity between the relative valuations, right? So it's definitely lacked. But in terms of what a successful 2024 will look like, I do think once the Bitcoin ETF is approved, the next thing down the line for the institutions would be the ETH ETF. And I think it definitely needs that institutional bid given it just its, its size um, for it to, to do well in 2024. But I do think, you know, given ETH as an asset, its fundamentals, given its deflationary nature, its, its inherent yield versus Bitcoin that does not have that, I do think it's definitely possible it can get that, that institutional narrative attached to it. Um, but yeah, I definitely do think it's necessary. And then when you look at more of, of like the crypto native things that maybe the institutions aren't really paying attention to right now, you have 4844 on the horizon. So it looks pretty clear right now that that's going to hit mainnet around March, uh, which is only a few months away. And with that, you're going to see a reduction in fees for rollups to post to the L1 by the current numbers are roughly around 80 to 90%, which is definitely a big reduction. And you know how that translates to transaction fees on the L2s, uh, that, that cost to post data to the L1 is roughly 80% of that fee. So if you take, let's say, 80% reduction in cost, and then 80% of that is the fee on the L2, then you're going to have around 65% to 80%, depending on what that number actually looks like in savings. So it's definitely going to be improved user experience. The question is, well, will that bring about any new user behavior or maybe any new you know, applications you wouldn't see otherwise? That's sort of a different question. But at the very least, I think people are going to be very happy transaction transacting on these rollups. Um, and then it also has another narrative in restaking where Eigenlayer hopefully is going live within, I think, uh, Q2, Q3 of 2024. Looks like the current timeline. And with that, you're going to get a whole restaking narrative. You're going to get many AVSs pop up and ETH sort of as this security asset, security blanket around many different applications, I think could cause a resurgence in narrative as well. So I think holistically, that's what 2024 looks like for ETH. I'm going to push back a bit against the institutional bid perspective and give a full agree to the latter two points you brought up there, which would be like kind of the uh, infrastructure narrative that could come with restaking and potentially even DVT. And then also, of course, like proto dank charting. I think the institutional bid narrative is kind of like, it's not going to make, it's not going to set Ethereum apart if we see Solana continue to outperform with retail users and, you know, with with us over the coming year, I think that, you know, there's just as much of a chance that Sol could have that institutional bid as ETH. Not that I foresee either, you know, being heavily bought by institutions in the near future, but I definitely do agree with the Dankun and Proto Dank sharding point. So like Dankun is the actual upgrade that, you know, 4844 will come with. And right now it's supposedly, according to the latest Ethereum all core devs calls coming, you know, sometime late February, March, like Westy said. So there's three scheduled testnet um, launches for, you know, this upgrade, which I believe are, January and early February. So I think for Ethereum to succeed, step one is like, that needs to happen on time because obviously Ethereum has been notoriously bad at, you know, getting things out when they say they're going to. But step one is okay, like 
we need to get Ethereum back in the narrative and this upgrade would be a huge help in that regard. I actually think that, you know, in itself, Dankun could have pretty big impact on Ethereum and its ecosystem. Not necessarily sure about the price of ETH specifically. I still, you know, happen to be like, I personally am pretty positioned that ETH could do better than everyone thinks, especially now that it's the most hated coin. But I think particularly for Uniswap and L2s, Dankun's this huge catalyst. Um, it'll allow Uniswap V4 to launch, which is obviously like a, you know, huge initiative. And I've heard like rumblings in some of the governance group chats that there's, you know, another fee switch discussion, although obviously there's always a fee switch discussion. And then for the L2s, of course, the cost savings that Westy alluded to, you know, that's that's massive, at least in the in the common perception that this could be like something that drives a lot of eyeballs to the L2s and Uniswap. Um, as far as DVT and restaking, like that is so poised to be a narrative. And it's, so I agree with that. But I have a feeling that that might not come until later in the year. But otherwise, fully agreed. You know, they got to hit the timeline with Dankun and then then these apps need to deliver. Like, we need to see Eigenlayer deliver. We need to see Uniswap v4 be better than v3 and things of that nature. So what I'm kind of hearing is over the last three to six months, there was really a lack of narrative. I think that really stems around just other, other uh, chains and ecosystems have been like, really grinding away at the same thing for a long time, right? If you're Solana, you're doing the single shard, high throughput, global shared state, that's that's what you're going for and you're not going to stop all pedal to the metal. But um, now they've hit a point where a lot of the optimizations that they've done are kind of sh- coming through. They're hitting high TPS. They meaningfully survived the inscription uh, wave and or attack, however you want to describe it, uh, which I think is actually a very meaningful signal. That took down a couple L2s um, and it's not like, that because if it's at the end of the day it's silly like you're just mass inscribing things in mass uh into the the data of transactions but what it did was push the tps limits to their max and i think this was a net positive for the entire industry because it came uh at a bit of an interesting time where it's like yeah it's like the early innings of probably the start of a new cycle but uh it's not like we're you know crypto is not sitting in in uh the limelight of cnbc right now and arbitrum having to put a push a zk sync and arbitrum having to fix their sequencers isn't like hitting the, the headline so honestly I, I really loved the timing of that i think we kind of did some extra hardening heading into the start of this cycle which is pretty exciting um but where i guess where i'm going with that is it, it was interesting to see the lack of narrative and then wes you just you nailed three upcoming narratives that i think will be huge and restaking is like sort of this weird circle jerk thing that i'm not like overly thrilled about personally but at the end of the day you got to take your own bias out of it and if you think about at the beginning of this year, maybe Q1 timeframe, liquid staking was all anybody could talk about. Everybody was fired up for it The because it wasn't just the, the tokens had already been around and come online and, and scaled, but it was now that we're building an industry around that. And I think you're going to get the same type of feeling with the restaking narrative, um, specifically with AVSs coming online through Eigenlayer, kind of doing some interesting things that couldn't exist on Ethereum before. So I do think that's a huge catalyst. But I think there's, a, you know, there's definitely question marks with Eigenlayer, just given its new cutting edge tech. It's not just like a layup that this is going to work on day one. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I think worries me, uh, and I'm not an ETH holder, but I think what worries me is like the lack of narrative. It's also that Ethereum, Ethereum for Ethereum to see, succeed, it's now dependent on third party teams executing. It's dependent on the rollup teams executing well. It's dependent on Eigenlayer and EigenDA out-competing Celestia, which already has a first mover advantage. You're seeing a bunch of rollups now deploying, like even ETH-based rollups. You saw Arbitrum uh, say that, I think, um, I could be wrong, Nitro maybe roll-ups or uh, it wasn't Arbitrum one. One of the 
roll up stacks for Arbitrum now is going to be leveraging uh, or has the option to leverage Celestia for DA. Um, you know, I think we're kind of at this port, point of like the S curve adoption of crypto that we're beyond the innovators. We're kind of we're, we're beyond like this religious cult following, uh, you know, of crypto. We're starting to like reach somewhat of mass adoption or at least we're potentially on the verge of mass adoption. And I think the problem is like Ethereum doesn't do anything well today just because it's the most valued market capped uh, non-Bitcoin related asset today. Like that does not mean that it's forever going to be the smart contract platform of the future. Like Solana obviously has gotten an insane bid. It can, there's a, I don't say there's a really good chance it could pass Ethereum, but if the sole asset surpasses Ethereum, what does ETH the asset do or what does Ethereum the network do that Solana doesn't besides have like maybe a more decentralized validator set, which I think is obviously extremely subjective depending on how you measure that. Um, but like outside of having a higher market cap asset, what does Ethereum actually have that Solana doesn't? And I think that's the problem. I, I like that you brought up Celestia because this conversation started as, you know, like Solana is encroaching on Ethereum and I, I don't really see it that way. I love Solana. Don't get me wrong. I use it all the time. I've been using it way more than Ethereum recently. But at the same time, like it's still a more nascent network that faces a lot of issues. Its fee mechanism has plenty of issues. It's multi-threaded, you know, uh, the way it's multi-threaded has problems of its own. I think even Tolly tweeted himself, like there's a long way to go before we kind of achieve a lot of what Ethereum has already succeeded in. And then additionally, it's kind of, uh, obviously it's a smart, they're both smart contract platforms, but really they're going for completely different things. Like the idea of a single shard versus modular scaling are kind of different markets to some extent. Um, so I actually think Ethereum still has a huge leg up over, I think Ethereum still has a huge leg up over Solana at the current moment could change in five years, but you know, today it's just a more mature technology that has a lot of problems fixed that, uh, Solana will still face into the future. Like it wasn't even that long ago in February when Solana went down for an entire day. That said, I think Celestia to me is like the real, you know, in 2024, could this be looked at as a competitor that could, you know. Uh, beat ETH at its value proposition that I could see happening. I don't think, you know, I don't necessarily think it's my base case, but I could see Rollup saying, why would we use Ethereum for DA when we can get cheaper DA on Celestia? And at this point, you know, that's Ethereum's main value proposition. Uh, so I guess like that's a bigger threat to me, to Ethereum's, you know, dominance than Solana even. Not quite a full day, 18 hours and 50 minutes, but <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, I want to get into some of the stuff you said on Solana a little bit later. I wanna, let's, I'm going to bring it back to ETH real quick before we jump into that. Uh, but David, I loved your point on Ethereum needing other L2 or other third-party teams to execute in order to kind of like achieve its goal. I've never really put it in that context. Uh, and that is actually pretty interesting. Um, you have one party to really worry about from Solana. It's a decentralized network. There's validators running the network, but like Solana Labs is the major core development team of Solana. As long as they execute, Solana will succeed. Ethereum is no longer in charge of its own destiny. And it's like the now the new narrative, which I wouldn't say it's new because everyone knew Rollups were going to be like this, the, the future for, for Ethereum over time. But like Ethereum, the base layer is not in charge of its own narrative anymore. It's literally dependent on the execution of these fragmented rollup teams um you know and you know eigen layer with eigen da uh and i would argue like you know talking about the nascency of solana's tech stack like that is extremely true solana is much more nascent than ethereum but solana is probably less nascent than the l2s and like we've seen them go down uh and where solana's had a, a you know a full year of not going down at all um 
So it's like, it, it's tough. They're obviously trying to do two different things. One's being more B2C, one's more B2B. But like, I don't know. I, I'm not really seeing what, outside of restaking, I think is the only narrative I can see for value accrual for ETH and like ETH kind of being this uh, leveraged security asset. But that's really dependent on Eigenlayer actually coming out soon and finding product market fit, which I'm personally bearish on, on Eigenlayer, but that's a whole other topic. I mean, to put my ETH hat on with what you just said, like you could look at that as a benefit, right? Because if you're only betting on the Solana team to benefit the Solana network, that's like a single point of failure. Whereas Ethereum, when it's focused on rollups, you have a bunch of different third-party teams trying different things, experimenting, and eventually the winners will win and they will be using Ethereum in some way, shape, or form. I also like what Matt brought up though, in that like Ethereum is in many ways not really competing with Solana. It's competing with other DA layers like Celestia that'll have multiple rollups posting to it. But at the same time, to me, even though they kind of are competing as a DA layer, like to me, Ethereum is a settlement layer, first and foremost in its value prop, like the ability to have ETH liquidity, ETH as an asset, and basically deploy that to any rollup that settles to Ethereum. I think it's a superpower. Granted, obviously over time, if enough rollups start to use Celestia or EigenDA, and maybe you see networks like Solana or other L1s start to increase their liquidity, then maybe you know Ethereum is not the only place they settle to or not the only place they have a trust minimized bridge to, right? So it's definitely a possible future where that's not okay. But at the same time, like I think Ethereum is somewhat future-proof and is really like uh, causing value to eat the asset by having it deployed on so many different chains uh, throughout the different rollups. Yeah. So I, settlement three times in the mirror, John Sharp comes and tries to kill you. It's a made-up <laughs> word. He, he even admitted it on a recent podcast. It is a made-up word. Um, but to so on the Solana Labs piece, this is actually a really interesting time because there are more teams building on core Solana than probably ever before with the jump team building out fire dancer, the Gito guys building on a, their, their client. And I think with that, you're actually kind of getting uh, a little bit more diversity on that front, which is super important because um, ultimately the more developer talent you have focused on your core layer, your base layer, uh, and the, the more eyes, the, the, probably the better product you're going to end up getting. Uh, so I think that's a pretty important point here. Uh, but on the Westy, what you said, I, I am kind of like, I, I feel like that narrative is coming alive. I, I've seen a couple of tweets were like semi-related to like calling Ethereum the root of trust, which is kind of interesting. Having your bridge contact on that train, you know, you are the source of truth for that roll up. Um, so that that is kind of an interesting route. My question there is like, you know, if you're a, a worse execution environment than some of these high throughput blockchains like Solana and, and some of the other, like say, maybe say is coming online with their parallel EVM or Monad or um, Apto, Sui, et cetera. There's a lot of high throughput chains now. If you're a worse execu execution environment than them, a worse DA layer than Celestia, you know, then you kind of get in this like, yeah, we're doing everything, but we're the best at nothing, uh, which that's a little bit of a nerve wracking position to be in, but they are currently the best place to have a bridge contact on because there's been all this liquidity uh, and people are just comfortable using that. But like, to me, that's not like a sticky moat at, at all. Like that's just a product of, it was the biggest and best DeFi hub last cycle because it was really the only place you could get that traction going. Now that developer tooling and viable alternatives exist, I'm just a little less comfortable sitting here saying like, yes, 
that will continue to be true into perpetuity. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to rationalize and justify that. Uh, and then lastly, on the team's front, that's a good point, because if you think about who's building these L2s, it's probably some of the best teams in crypto with the ZK Sync team, the Scroll team, the Polygon team, the Arbitrum team, the Optimism team. Like That's a lot of the smartest minds that we have in crypto. So uh, yeah, that's that's a good counterpoint. I think to the point you made about like, you know, Ethereum can't have this moat. I kind of disagree. Like if you look at, you know, traditional coding languages, I think Java is still like a top three most used language might even be like the second or third most used language. And I guess the question I have is, you know, why? And the answer is because there's so many available resources for learning it. There are so many public, you know, repos for going and grabbing code. So it actually does build this moat, even if maybe new coding languages come out that are more efficient for a specific use case. Uh, you know, someone might go still implement it in Java because of the resources available, developer tooling, et cetera. And I think Ethereum actually has achieved this. You know, will this mean that it's forever the long-term incumbent? Does it, it'll dominate the market? No, I don't believe that. But I do believe it'll always have its place, at least, you know, way longer than, uh, on a way longer time frame than uh, we can imagine. So I don't think that, you know, Ethereum's losing that uh, that dominance anytime soon. It's just a lot easier as a smart contract developer to go to pl- deploy it to the EVM than it is even if you're familiar with Rust because, you know, there's all these EVM implementations that already exist for AMMs or lending or whatever it might be. Yeah, I'll give you that for sure. Developer tooling is a real moat. Uh, even just like talking to some uh, some developers building various applications across different sectors, DeFi, stablecoins, um, social applications like it it really is it does matter about the developer tooling you know they already have a hard enough job the last thing they want to go do is build on a chain where they have to work even harder because you ultimately end up with less security and when you're securing value that's not something that you feel comfortable with kind of seems to be the general consensus there um so i guess we can put a bow on to in order to put a bow on the what does ethereum need to do for 2024 uh, pl- feel free to chime in here, but to me, it kind of sounds like the summary would be it is next on the institutional pecking order. If it, if that ha- comes sooner rather than later, and then I think that's in a very good position to bring some positive light towards the the network. It's got key upgrades with like with Denkun coming, bringing EIP four eight four four and some other EIPs online that again improve what it uh, what Ethereum serves as a base layer to L twos. Um, yeah, any anything else that you really just like put a nail in and be like, if this happens, Ethereum is continuing on on the, on the right path. Yeah. I mean, I'd say obviously roll up teams continuing to build out their products and experimenting as well as restaking. I think a lot of people are going to be surprised at like the new innovations that come as a result of the, the AVS is built. I know effort is pretty, uh, pretty bearish, but I feel like every week I hear of a new solution being created using eigenlayers. So like, even I'm shocked it's the stuff being built. So I think those are two things I would add. Let's kind of move that on to Solana and talk about Solana for a bit and what they need to do to have a successful year. For me, it feels like it kind of lumps into two buckets. Well, the first being optimizing the base layer uh, and the second being attracting developers to build useful apps. Because to Matt's point on the second bucket, it's hard to build and you don't want it to be harder to build. And a uh, big fan of Buffalo from Gito, G- the Gito Labs team, co-founder over there. Uh, he's always tweeting about like things that I do not understand when it comes to like Rust programming. And every now and then I'll f- see him tweet out like, a, oh, like I just figured out how to do X, Y, and Z. If you're going to do this, here's what you should do because it'll make your life significantly easier. And I'm, I just like love seeing things like that because that is just really kind of hammering away at making things easier to do, which is super important. And so 
if you continue to attract developers, make that ecosystem easier to build in, obviously that brings in users and kind of helps spin that flywheel. And so you know, people talk about like the DeFi renaissance. I, I was actually re-listening to a podcast we did on Bell Curve in July, and, and we kind of brought, brought up the idea of this Solana DeFi renaissance. And uh, it's kind of interesting because if you look back at Ethereum's DeFi summer in, uh, let's see, 2020, then it was really the only thing going on on chain for the most part, right? There wasn't like stable coins were coming online, of course, and the NFTs started to heat up a little bit after DeFi summer. Um, and there wasn't like this deep in narrative by any means. Social apps were, were just like a pipe dream. Uber on the blockchain seemed like a cool idea, no way to do it. Uh, and so that's like one key difference I think Solana has is it doesn't necessarily need to have a DeFi 2.0, a DeFi Summer 2.0. It can just have like this on-chain explosion, right? Where there's uh, stable coins are flowing through the ecosystem. It's being used as payment rails. You have NFTs and DeFi already happening pretty vibrantly on Solana. And you have deep in applications like Helium and, and HiveMapper coming online and, and really bringing that narrative as well. So it's like this multi-sectored approach, which I do find pretty interesting. So continuing to capture those developers and bring them into the ecosystem and make their lives easier, I think is essential uh, to the Solana ecosystem as a whole. But rolling back to that first point on optimizing the base layer, Matt, you kind of alluded to this uh, in the Ethereum side. And the fee markets are not great today, right? They're kind of a V1 uh, implementation where I would call it like functional, but far from optimized. And so there is a lot of research that needs to go in and work on the implementation side of like actually getting these new fee markets live and really, first of all, deciding um, what we want in these fee markets. So it was a brief overview, but not to go too in depth here. It's not really the purpose of this episode. On Solana, you pay a fixed flat fee based on the number of signers for your transaction. Uh, and then you can play a variable priority fee on top of that to kind of increase the likelihood of your transaction being included. And so this, you know, conceptually works well. And there's just like a few small bugs in that. It's like, if I pay more, I don't necessarily go first. It's because there's still a bit of a timing game going on. Uh, and so in the 1.18 upgrade that's coming to Solana soon, there is an improving, they're specifically improving the scheduler to reduce jitter, which is basically um, some uh, randomness in some ways of where your transaction will land on one of the four threads. Uh, and that will help improve some of this. So again, it's just the, the idea, overarching idea for what Solana needs to continue doing is optimizing what it already has. It has parallel, uh, parallel processing. It has isolated fee markets, um, but it needs to really just improve the quality of how those systems are running. And then one thing I need to, uh, one like key issue is sort of like the, the known unknowns, right. Is, is uh, MEV that's, becoming very increasing the MEV activity is rapidly increasing on Solana and this was a huge problem for Ethereum they've basically when they during the uh, migration from proof of work to proof of stake bringing in uh, the MevBoost system you know that solved a lot of the issues that they're trying to do but it also in some ways created new ones right we basically have two to three builders that build every ethereum block and there's what like three relays now with an increasing uh, adoption of the OFAC sanction list like it, it's yes, it solved a lot of the problems they set out to solve, but again, it kind of created this, these new issues that the community is now spending a lot of time thinking about. So getting ahead of the MEV problem, I think is huge. Um, but that's like a borderline impossible, impossible problem to just like come up with a solution with overnight. And it's also a slow burn problem. Like it's not just going to become a problem overnight either. Um, but as activity picks up, 
And with the increased adoption of the Gito client, there will be more MEV and you're already seeing that in the numbers. So uh, kind of some things that I just think Solana needs to focus on and work on. But again, it's more of like optimizing what they have rather than creating whole new systems or like changing their narrative or focusing on something new, which I think is a key distinction here. I think it's a bit of an optimistic way of looking at it. <laughs> like just to play devil's advocate, um, you know, isolated fee markets have a ton of problems in the way they work in Solana. Like you could probably just send a transaction that calls a function on, I don't know, um, whatever the latest, hottest ordinal on Solana Mint is, and then also call it on take your pick of popular DeFi protocol, whether it be like, uh, you know, Jupiter or an Oracle or whatever. And now all of a sudden that other, uh, you know, that other protocol is, is looped in with, with this other one. Of course, there are ways to get around that. Like I heard, I forget where I was reading this, but someone was talking about, and it's super complex, like Merkle tree type stuff, but it was a similar, like, you know, you can build a tree around it and be like, okay, this, this transaction doesn't actually, shouldn't actually count. But now we're talking about like intense cryptography that very few people can probably achieve. Although hopefully Solana does have those people working on it. It's just, I don't think it's like this super simple solution to get around that. Um, same with the fee markets, you know, can you go ahead and just copy Ethereum or something like Ethereum? Yeah. But now we're talking about something that's very different than the way Solana fees work today. So I do think that it's possible and I love what Solana's doing. It's just, I think it's a little bit more difficult than kind of just, yeah, like we can just keep iterating and optimizing what we have today. There's some like pretty fundamental flaws in the way that it's built. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, there's definitely some good points in there. Like when you're locking state for a specific transaction, you can just like name arbitrary state you're not even touching um, and your transaction doesn't touch and you would still be impacting the fee markets uh, if you do that. And so there are some like strange things. There was a, there's like an ongoing discussion about how you could theoretically enable like an Oracle attack, right? Like if I'm just start spamming transactions to that claim to touch like an Oracle update contract, then you could probably do some like long range or short range attack where you make it super, super expensive or you attempt to make it expensive uh, to kind of pull that attack off uh, by claiming or like touching the state or even saying you're going to touch the state of this Oracle contract. Uh, and so will be interesting to see how that kind of shakes out. But again, I mean, yeah, you're right. It, it is more complicated than just like saying you need to optimize your fees, right? There's a huge like uh, spiral of things that need to be done in order to make that actually work. All right, Zero X Research listeners, we're calling on you to join us for the premier institutional crypto conference in Europe's crypto capital, London, this March 2024. You're going to get to hear exclusive insights from industry trailblazers on things like leveraging DeFi protocols for institutional yield, tokenizing real world assets with instant settlement, navigating the evolving global regulatory landscape, integrating digital assets into banking and payments, or crafting institutional investment mandates with digital assets as the key focus. We'll also be featuring some big keynote speakers, including Melvin Dang, the CEO at QCP Capital, Mark Yusko, the CEO and managing partner of Morgan Creek Capital, and Sonny Kluchin, the founder and CEO of Ave Companies. This is not an event you're going to want to miss. Seats are limited, so be sure to register today by hitting the link in the description and using promo code 0x20 to save 20% on your tickets. See you in London, the land of tasty pastries, and be sure to hit up Dan and I for a beer. To, to pivot from the nerd speak here, I think one narrative that you didn't really touch on was the amount of airdrops we can expect within the Solana ecosystem within Q1 uh, from many different DeFi projects, etc. Um, I think, you know, this will obviously be huge catalysts, kind of like Cheeto was for creating a wealth effect within the ecosystem. Well, one thing we've definitely been 
discussing is, okay, once we have a lot of different tokens within the network, not just Cheeto that people can bet on, does that dilute the soul value? And another interesting thing I'm thinking about is sort of the dynamics uh, of sort of like a DeFi summer. If there were to be one of these tokens getting bid up, one problem that ETH had during its DeFi summer is that when people were speculating tokens were going up, there was almost this uh, like dampening effect as a result of gas fees. And then whenever there was a spike in speculation, gas fees also spiked, which then dampened the volatility, caused people to sort of sell off stuff to like calm down for a bit before another speculative bounce. I wonder if because Solana won't have the spike in gas fees, whether we'll see the same dampened volatility or rather than, you know, a spike in gas fees causing it, it's, it comes from people maybe exiting their DeFi positions into Sol. You sort of see rotations between Sol, like we're seeing now, where Sol runs, the NFTs and the other altcoins don't run, and there's sort of rotation between the two, or if or Sol sort of gets diluted from all these other tokens. Um, so yeah, I'm interested, interested to see how things play out in this realm. I think there's like one thing that, Solana needs to do like in my opinion it already has a narrative it already captured the mind share um crypto is still like generally non-consensus it's not on cnbc mostly right now like it's still kind of under the radar so soul is flying there could just not be one major DeFi hack in solana and i think solana just like continues to succeed it's easy to use and also one other thing i th think we'd, i'd really like to see is like tron has been like the payments plot the payments chain uh in emerging markets and, and what have you, because it's cheap and because it has really good distribution with Binance Pay. Um, Solana is technically a better payment chain than any other, I don't know, L1 or L2 out there. Uh, so I think if Solana Pay, like I think the most bullish thing Solana can do is get Solana Pay integrated everywhere. Shopify, I'm, I think it's already on Shopify actually, um, but like, Amazon, if possible, like that's it might sound crazy, but like, hey, Visa literally wrote up a whole report about Solana earlier this year. Obviously, they took like really uh, careful like research or did careful analysis on why Solana is a really good payment uh, chain. Um, so I think getting stable coin volumes uh, and stable coin usage on Solana, getting it used in Latin America and other emerging markets, like and potentially overtaking Tron as like the go to. Uh, payments provider or payments chain like that is probably like how Solana be becomes like a top two chain honestly like overtakes Ethereum as if it can actually find product market fit there um, but I think really like the the biggest thing that Solana can't have is like a really major hack uh, but obviously that's like the case for every ecosystem but like Ethereum at this point like there's a ha new hack like I feel like every week and it's kind of impervious to or at least the, the capital on Ethereum is kind of impervious to hacks at this point because they're it just has happened so frequently throughout its history um but we haven't really seen something like major on Solana uh, at least in a while to my knowledge um so that's the one thing I'm worried about the most but outside of something catastrophic like Solana is most likely going to succeed for 24. I like your point that it's Solana's game to lose. Like right now they're so entrenched in the narrative that, you know, as long as they don't screw up, they probably will stay there. But I'd also like to see some apps on Solana, like apps that can only be made on Solana. So for instance, like you go use Jupyter for a swap and it just feels so much better than any router on Ethereum. I want to see that same thing for order book exchanges. I want to see Phoenix and I want to see Drift. I want to see them really show that you can build something on Solana that you can't build on Ethereum mainnet. 
And then at that point, I'm like, okay, well, there you go. Now this is, now this is really a competitor. Um, and I think to facilitate that, a lot of the, the things that we we're speaking about earlier on the more technical protocol side need to probably be fixed first. But that said, like, you know, if Phoenix manages to create an order book exchange on all on chain that actually uh, has high throughput, can function at the levels of Uniswap and, you know, whatever else, um, then to me, that's like, okay, here we go. Maybe the same thing will happen in sectors that we haven't even seen on Ethereum because it's too gas intensive to do. So things like Deepin and whatever else might pop up. Yeah, for sure, man. I totally agree. And you mentioned Jupiter there. If anyone hasn't used Jupiter's DCA feature, go use it, and you, you'll feel you'll feel better about Solana. I promise. But uh, I, I made this tweet earlier today, semi jokingly, but I'm curious. So for the listeners rather than the viewers, we have a chart of DeFi applications built on Ethereum through time. And if you plot that out, all I did here was take the DeFi Llama data downloaded to CSV. And basically just charted, you know, times when the, a protocol had a TVL above zero, obviously meaning it exists. So DeFi or Ethereum as a whole really had sub 100 protocols on, built on it until about the summer of 2021. And if you pull up this chart, you really start to feel like that's kind of where it feels like Solana is today. Yes, Solana had this past life where it was riddled with the Macalino brothers and FTX. But if you pretend that that didn't happen here, just close your mind here. And I, I can already see Matt losing his mind because that most indeed did happen. But if you pretend that didn't for a second, it kind of does in a lot of ways feel like we are at the very tail end of, or the very, very, very early innings of, of this chart for Solana. But let me explain why. Because Matt, you just asked for a bunch of applications that are doing things that are only possible on Solana. If you fast forward to that end state in X number of years, doesn't matter when it was, that is an end state where everyone's building these things. But what does the beginning state look like for that that end state, right? Like what is the, what does it start as and then grow into that end state of everything having these very unique features that can only happen on a high throughput blockchain? To me, it kind of feels like where we're at right now, where you see Jupiter doing cool shit, or you see order books coming online through Phoenix, and you see deep in applications like Teleport actually having a thesis on how you could build Uber on the blockchain, and you see HiveMapper existing on Solana, and you see Helium offering their 5G plan for $20 built on Solana. Like You're seeing these very early innings of that, and to me, that is sort of how I'm viewing this, is like we are we're in the early, early, early stages of having applications that are doing shit that can only happen on these high throughput chains. So I don't know, Matt, I'd love to get your take because I feel like you definitely have some thoughts on why I'm an idiot. No, I actually tend to agree. I just think that we can be in the early innings and further out with more problems to face on the way to, you know, this end goal, this success and long-term vision of like seeing these apps that can only exist on Solana. I think only on Solana. I like that. It's a good narrative. They should, the Solana lab should take that. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, I fully agree. I think that it's well positioned to achieve that in the high throughput uh, smart contract platform sector. But at the same time, I just don't think we're there yet. And I think that we see things move so slow. Maybe Solana will change my mind and prove me wrong. But I think that it might be a while before we see like applications that don't look pretty similar to the same things that we see going on in the EVM. Fair takes all around. So let's summarize that. A successful year for Solana probably looks like something along the lines of optimizing its base layer, so improving its fee markets and its parallel processing units, uh, which comes down to like transaction scheduling and isolated fee markets. Get ahead of the MEV issue before it really turns into an issue. We kind of saw how this worked for Ethereum, and I think there's probably some learnings to be had there. 
look into the payments side of things. I think that's a huge narrative. I, I'm a pre- I appreciate you bringing that up effort. Uh, and then of course, make things easier for developers to build. If you want things that are only possible on Solana, you need to make it easy to be built. Uh, and one huge catalyst I think Solana has in that is that it's not just DeFi that sounds great on Solana. It's DeFi, consumer applications, stable coins, NFTs, uh, D-PIN, AI, social application. There's, there's a litany of, of different sectors that you kind of have, which is a really cool narrative. Um, so yeah, things I think look quite good. Anything to add there? Should we move on to the our next topic? I see head shake. So let's get into the Bitcoin side of things. I think this is another exciting angle to hit because we don't normally talk about Bitcoin miners. Uh, so effort, I know you've been kind of in the weeds checking out some different miners and some have some thoughts on the situation. So let's hear about the Bitcoin miners, man. Yeah, sure. We'd love to. Um, so this month, Bitcoin miners are on an absolute tear. Um, obviously, Bitcoin has gotten a great bid this entire year. Um, I mean, over the past month, Bitcoin is up, what, approximately 12%, which is, you know, decent for a, what, a trillion dollar asset. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what the value is uh, currently. But miners uh, have been really, I think, with the upcoming ETF, uh, hopefully in the next month or so, we're going to know whether or not the ETF is approved. Um, also with inscriptions uh, or ordinals, whatever the, you know, the exact terminology is, um, Bitcoin miners are just like making hand over fist in terms of fees. Um, and I think the market is starting to catch on, like the TradFi market is starting to catch on to not just like the ETF bid, but the inscriptions, like the, the amount of fees that Bitcoin miners are actually starting to generate. It's not just the block subsidy anymore and like the historical low uh, transaction fees that miners have historically gotten. So, I mean, just to rattle off some of the miners, Marathon's up 125% this month. So on the back of, they just announced about a week ago that they purchased two Bitcoin mining sites uh, and almost doubled their mining capacity. Uh, I think the two mining sites had almost 400 megawatts of, of new capacity coming online for Marathon uh, in uh, either sometime in Q1, I want to say January or February. So they're currently at like 910 megawatts and they're far and away like the largest publicly uh, traded miner uh, in crypto, or at least that's like the growing consensus. And I'm going to explain why that's actually not the case. Um, uh, CleanSpark, I believe they're called, is up 88%. Riot's up 38%. And then my like favorite Bitcoin miner stock today, and this is not financial advice, but I do have a uh, sizable position in right now, is BitDeer. And they're up 154%. So BitDeer is a company owned by Jihan Wu, who is like a giga BTC whale. He was the first person to translate the Bitcoin white paper in Mandarin back in 2011. Um, I know that he had like a whole bunch of uh, things going on with Bitcoin Cash back in the day. Um, he's also one of the co-founders, or maybe he was like the sole uh, founder. And Matt, I think you know a little bit about Bitmain too, but he was like the co-founder of, of Bitmain, uh, which is obviously like a large mining entity, um, you know, historically. Uh, but I know recently over the past like couple of years, him and like, I think a co-founder or like the uh, other executive chairman of, of Bitmain, they had kind of a falling out. Jihan left, started this like mining company called BitDeer. They went public via SPAC about eight months ago. And almost everyone on crypto Twitter is seeing how like people are trying to find like the under uh, value Bitcoin miner as like a high beta play to Bitcoin with the spot ETF, obviously. And everyone's talking about like the other miners out there. Uh, I saw Iris Energy being brought up, uh, Riot, CleanSpark, and obviously Marathon's like the king. Um, but nobody was really talking about BitDeer. So just like explain, I guess, why I think BitDeer is probably 
in my opinion, the best mining play right now. Um, they are valued at 1.27 billion. So if you look at Marathon, Marathon's just shy of 6 billion today. And I think R Marathon and Riot are really like the two market leaders, I would say. Riot's at like 3.3 billion approximately. So Bitdeer needs to 5X hit Marathon's market cap and needs to 3X approximately to hit Riot's market cap. And if you look, actually look at like the fundamentals of Bitdeer, it's really impressive. And I think the reason why the market really doesn't know about it is because it just went public earlier this year. It has never seen a, a crypto bull market uh, as a publicly traded entity. Um, and it's really not covered on the street. I think there's like one analyst in all the street that's actually covering it. Like it's not even like a major analyst uh, at all. Like I wanted like JP Morgan or like the larger TradFi firms. They have the same mining capacity or very similar mining capacity to Marathon, even with Marathon recently acquiring 390 megawatts. So Marathon's complete mining capacity is going to be 910 megawatts. Bitdeer has 895 megawatts online today. They mined the same amount of Bitcoin last quarter as Riot. I think they like mined like three or five more or less Bitcoin, but they're essentially in the same order of magnitude of mining Bitcoin as Riot. They have cheaper elect. They have about ten percent cheaper electricity costs than Riot and Marathon. Um, and on top of that, they recently announced a partnership with Nvidia to offer some of their excess uh, capacity to um, offer like AI cloud solutions. Um, and Bitdeer has most of their mining facilities in the United States. They're setting up a very large mining facility in Bhutan, but they're headquartered in Singapore, and they're going to be offering like. They're pretty much like an Asia AI play on top of already being one of the largest like Bitcoin miners and having one of the largest uh, hash rate uh, uh, market market share today. Uh, and they're sitting again at like a third of the price of Riot and a 20% uh, of the price of Marathon. And I'm looking at this and in my opinion, like fundamentally, it looks like the best mining play today. Uh, but it's still kind of under the radar. So like not Mike Alfred and a couple other people on crypto Twitter bring it up. But for the most part, everyone's talking about like Clean Spark and Riot and less so Bitdeer. What's the uh with the with the parity in fundamentals, yet the lack in valuation, they're the I should say the I guess the gap in valuation. Like what's the other side of this? What's the hole? What's the why why the gap? Is the street just mispricing this or what's the deal? I mean, I think so. Like today most of the miners were red or break even, even with Bitcoin down like 3% plus on the day. Um, I'm not sure where it is at currently, but it was down as like much as three, three and a half percent at one point. Um, Marathon was like essentially break even. Most of the other large like miners like Riot was break even. But I mean, Bitdeer is catching up. It was up 12% today. At one point, it was up as high as 20%. Uh, again, it's up 154% this month. Um, while obviously the other miners did well, but I think the street is starting to catch on. It's just, I think, of true information asymmetry. They just went public eight months ago this year. Uh, they had a really large sell-off. They went down as low as, um, what, like sub $3, which at that point I think was uh, like less than $300 million market cap. So they are like, there's risk, I guess, as being a, a newer publicly traded company. But if you actually look at like the heritage of Jihan Wu, his history in the Bitcoin community and the Bitcoin cash community. Like the guy clearly knows he's, he's an OG. He's a giga BTC whale. I'm assuming um, he probably knows how to um, get like a good pipeline of Bitcoin miners uh, probably has like a, again, like a really good distribution and is well known. Uh, and also 
you know, they, they are more, they're, they're based in Singapore, but like, they are also like a, a Bitcoin China, Asia play. Whereas like almost the other, the other Bitcoin miners are based in the United States predominantly. So I think like there's potentially some of this like regulatory, um, concern, maybe the market might be pricing in, but in my opinion, I think it's mostly just information asymmetry. Nobody's looking at it. Nobody on the street is covering it, but they're covering the other players in this space. Yeah, with the having looming as well, I, I want to go ahead and share some stats around just the the fee revenue of Bitcoin. I've been historically quite critical on Bitcoin's security model because obviously with perpetually decreasing block rewards, um, you know, you have to the, the the other side of that is is it has to be an increase in fee revenue, and we just hadn't seen anything kind of give the inkling of like, hey, this could be the this could be the answer. But ordinals popped up. And the fee revenue these things are generating is crazy. I personally think they're a bit gimmicky, but at the end of the day, I feel the same way about NFTs and that's a huge expanding market. So you kind of have to rip your bias out of there at some point and just kind of observe what the market's telling you. And the market absolutely loves ordinals. If you look at the, so if you say the total minor revenue is block subsidy, block subsidy plus transaction fees, um, the current breakdown of how transaction fees are impacting that is hitting an all-time high. And so, or I should say all-time, it's about, it's about a two-year high uh, during the last cycle that there was a couple peak days where we kind of are slightly higher than we are today, but about 25% of total minor revenue is coming from transaction fees. And again, if you're trying to like explain this to uh, somebody who doesn't spend all day on the crypto side of things, like these ordinals coming to Bitcoin, creating this massive increase in transaction speed or transaction fees, you know, that's like a, a hard mountain to climb. And there, I could see there being some like market lagging and in, in pricing in the adoption of ordinals uh, into some of these minor stocks. Because again, like this is, this is new and something we haven't seen before and materially impacting minor revenue. Uh, so again, like we're seeing all time highs in, on a big, in Bitcoin terms. So if I flip over to the monthly uh, and in the Bitcoin terms, there's been about 4,000 of fees. So this, this last bar you see here is, just total transaction fees, but this is going to be the last completed month, which uh, recording on December 26th, we're not quite done December. So on January 1st, this month will update, uh, but we've already eclipsed uh, the minor revenue from transaction fees uh, for this month. I think we're about at about 4,000, which is we're flirting with all time highs here. And again, like it's insane to see the adoption mostly being driven by ordinals, given that they're largely just like NFTs and people love them at the end of the day. One interesting thing on the ordinal front that I've seen recently is, you know, there's been this dichotomy among Bitcoiners. I mean, calling them all Bitcoiners um, because they all like Bitcoin. But, you know, on one side, you have like the Udi and Eric Wall who are fully embracing inscriptions, have their own inscription project, Taproot Wizard. And then on the other side, you have people like Luke Dash Jr. and Jimmy Song who absolutely hate it. They <laughs> despise it. They think it's terrible for the network. And from my perspective over the last, I don't know, six months, eight months since ordinals have been in existence, it's kind of been like a dichotomy. It's been like an even battle. But over the recent months, and actually really over the last week or two, we've seen a few other large influential Bitcoiners come out in support of ordinals, particularly for the exact same reason you got to, Dan, which is that it gives them a vision at long-term sustainability um, just from transaction fees for the network. They think that, you know, at the end of the day, that if it can be included in the Bitcoin chain, it's a valid transaction. Bitcoin has rules. If you know it follows the rules, that's a valid Bitcoin transaction. 
And, you know, we're seeing people like even like Jameson Lop, who I've always looked at as like the hyper Bitcoiner. I mean, this dude literally disappeared off the face of the earth. Like there's a New York Times article about it, if you're ever feeling uh, so inclined. But yeah, he literally disappeared off the face of the earth because he's getting swatted so much for being so influential in the Bitcoin community. And he's, you know, tweeting uh, against Luke Dash Jr. right there along with Udi Narek Wall. So it seems like that uptick is actually going to shut out the haters of the inscription soon, which is something I was worried about. I was worried that you know, they might uh, create a max data size or something that would then make these these ordinals not possible to create. So it's really good to see that. And effort, I totally agree with you. Like Bitcoin miners seem like a good play. You happen to like, I think you maybe came across a really good one. Um, it, I probably plan on getting a position in it and it's definitely not financial advice. But Jihan Wu prior to like the big block debate was one of the most influential people in the Bitcoin community as well. He was a big, big, big blocker. So after, you know, uh, after whatever 2017 when that was a, a big controversy he kind of lost some of his his clout but at the same time he is an og has to be a billionaire i don't actually know that but has to be a billionaire and um yeah super exciting stuff the big blockers were right anyways so it's maybe that's bullish and it's a bit deer reindeer christmas time i like the you know some meme meme power there maybe that's fundamentals right there but the other thing that's interesting is bitcoin's obviously had the huge narrative of the etf market definitely thinks that i would i would my opinion is the market definitely thinks that that is still on pace to happen we just saw barry step down from uh dcg which is an rip to another main character but uh there's been some speculation that that was kind of like all right i'll step down get this gbtc through to an etf and kind of like let the let my child live on without me overseeing it i guess i don't know I, i'm not too attached to dcg uh and kind of how their etf narrative or their pursuit is going um so that's kind of again just how the market kind of was generally viewing this event uh but nonetheless arc and 21 shares are the first etf to hit a deadline or final deadline for decision uh so just as a reminder the general consensus view is that on the first deadline there will be a decision for a majority of the applicants because they don't really want to favor one participant over the other and give someone a first mover advantage uh so that is january 10th right around the corner you'd have to imagine that there was a, a lump sum decision coming that day uh, so again, I think it'll kind of remain in the narrative and we'll see how the market reacts to the actual news event. You know, whether it's a buy the news, sell the news is TBD. I like your point about buy the news versus sell the news. Some of the more sophisticated people I talk to are bearish the actual event. You know, they're hyper bullish, everything, buy whatever you can, hold whatever you can until, you know, ETF approved. But to them, you know, the ETF is a sell the news event. For me, I see it as, you know, almost guaranteed inflows into crypto, you know, these high net worth individuals who otherwise are, are left out and not able to buy Bitcoin. Maybe they think that, you know, holding money on Coinbase has exchange risk after they saw FTX and prior to that Mt. Gox and plenty of other exchanges. They don't want to deal with the, you know, the hassle that is self-custody. Self-custody really is a pain in the ass. Um, so this will give people of that nature the ability to onboard into Bitcoin that didn't have it before. So I don't see it as a sell the news event, but it's interesting that there are so many, and I'm talking about like some of the smarter traders in our industry who are, who are not so bullish on the actual news when it comes out. Yeah. You just mentioned something interesting, which is like, I, so for me, I hate bridging between two blockchains. If there's like a, it's gotta be a really good reason to drag me over there. And that's kind of like switching from a Coinbase account or from a brokerage account and moving funds into a, a Coinbase account. It's kind of the same thing. Like, 
if you, you just got to make it easier for people. And this is very much so doing that. If it's just two clicks away from selling something and buying something or buying this Bitcoin ETF, I, it's just objectively going to bring in inflows in my view. Uh, so I, I think I largely agree with what your thoughts there, Matt. I also think people underestimate the amount of marketing that's going to go into these things, because like you sort of mentioned, like this is definitely a first mover advantage kind of market where the person that's able to capture you know, a huge market share, the number of inflows quickly, that usually they usually regain a huge, large size of that network. And we've seen that with other ETFs in the past, such as the gold ETFs, where there's one major provider that has 80% of the liquidity and inflows. And so I think you're going to see a huge marketing battle between all the different ETF providers. I know that there's like rumors about a deal between BlackRock and Google to start advertising their, their Bitcoin ETF through Google, whereas previously Google sort of had a rule where uh, they couldn't take ad money from financial institutions. Um, so I think there's definitely some stuff going on in the background where there's going to be a huge marketing battle, battle for attention with that. I think, you know, people are sort of underestimating what that'll do to inflows as a whole. Yeah, I don't know if you guys saw the uh, the Bitwise ads already, but they brought in the Dosecki's most interesting man in the world for it, which was was pretty awesome to see. And uh, Matt Hogan, who's been a regular on this show as well, got to got some airtime as well. So shout out to Matt for that. Uh, but guys, thanks a ton for coming and joining and having a, a good episode today. Appreciate you all for listening, and we will see you all next week. Cheers. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. See you next year classic joke. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. We hope you really enjoyed it. Wanted to take one more moment to remind you guys about our upcoming 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London this March. Seats are limited, so be sure to hit the link in the description and use promo code 0x20 to save 20% off on your ticket. We'll see you in London. Be sure to hit us up if you plan on attending.